I'm joined today by Ian Bradley, reader in Church History and Practical Theology at the University of St Andrews, who has written a piece in the May History Today called Britishness, a Scottish Invention, which basically says that uh, the Scots invented, or certainly played a major role in inventing concepts of Britishness. And you're, you're saying that Britishness is largely a Scottish invention, and that we can date the origins of the idea back to the, the 16th century Reformation, and I suppose it climaxes that first period with the 1707 Act of Union. Yes, indeed. I mean, basically, if you look at the, the, the first generation of Scottish reformers, they very much styled themselves as, as Scottish Britons. I mean, John Major, for example, one of the one of the, the, the key figures in the in the early days of the Scottish Reformation, who taught both at, at Glasgow and here in St Andrews, talked about himself as a Scottish Briton. Wrote uh, a history of Greater Britain in 1521, which was very much a passionate call for the the union of Britannia. And of course, lying behind this was was the strong Protestant impetus and urge uh, to create a a, a powerful Protestant counterpart to France and, and Spain. Um, you get Andrew Melville, who's, who's one of the, the key architects of the whole Presbyterian church mm -hmm. settlement in, in Scotland, calling himself a Scotto-Briton. And they are fully behind the, the, the union of England and Scotland, which, of course, first of all, comes with the union of the crowns under James VI and James I, and then later, as you say, with the, with the full parliamentary union of 1707. And I presume... Um, that these Scotto-Britons, as they term themselves, had um, allies among the Puritans in England. Yes, they did. Yes, you can see you can see quite a lot of, of, of um, cooperation, and and it's the same agenda in in both cases um, of of creating this 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 stronger Protestant nation. Yes, it's you, it's very much being fueled by by English Puritanism, which of course goes on right through the the 17th century, and something like the Westminster Assembly of Divines, of course, yeah. in in the 1640s, which brings together Scottish and English Puritans, hoping for a much more Puritan. Britain, uh, although in the event it's Scotland only that picks up things like the, the Westminster Confession and the Westminster Catechism and the Directory of Public Worship, but of course the, the English Puritans were hoping this would, would lead to a much more Puritan England as well, which it doesn't. Uh, and we see some of the ideas there um, that also affected English Puritanism uh, being argued by those on both sides who argue for this union of England and Scotland. We're looking at the kind of classical Republican tradition the civic values of ancient Rome, you talk about the covenant of the Old Testament of Israel. These are things that are very much part of the civil wars and the periods around the civil wars as well. These ideas, this, this great ferment of ideas that takes place there. Absolutely. And, and a classic example of this would be a very interesting tract, which has recently been, been republished with a, with a very good scholarly edition called De Unione Insulae Britannicae, written in 1605 by David Hume, who was a leading uh, Presbyterian scholar in post-Reformation Scotland. And he is absolutely appealing to, to exactly these ideas, the, the kind of civic values of ancient Rome, uh, the covenant theology of Old Testament Israel, the, the, the notion that, that we're talking about a chosen people here, um, the ideals of the, of the Commonwealth forged by, by Protestant reformers. So absolutely, you, you've got this raft of ideas which are very much behind the kind of um, 
parliamentary uh, arguments in the in the years leading up to the civil war and and which which find full expression really in in this this vision of of britain as as a kind of covenanted uh, protestant nation and he has practical means um to uh intermingle the two cultures doesn't because he talks about intermarriage and also planting uh, english colonies uh, yes i mean some fascinating ideas he thought there should be english colonies uh, planted in uh, in loch harbour around about fort william and and out in the western isles to promote a kind of ethnic intermingling um he he was actually proposing that people who just described themselves as scottish or english should should be fined heavily which would which would mean quite a lot of people in the in the last in the last census would have, would have found themselves fine and he interestingly proposed a single parliament for the United Kingdom um, with, with regional assemblies in Law- York, London, Lancaster and Edinburgh and each of these regional assemblies drawing at least a fifth of their members from the country on the other side of the old border. So he was very much into kind of uh, creating some sort of intermingling of the English and Scots in the hope that this would break down their, their sort of individual ethnic national identities and create more of a sense of Britishness. It's a very interesting raft of ideas. And, and this, uh, the whole idea of, of, of Britishness there, certainly so, so, as Scotland again, is again proposed and developed through, I suppose, the most famous period of intellectual ideas in Scottish history, the Scottish Enlightenment during the 18th century. Absolutely. I mean, that's really when you get the term North Britain coined to describe Scotland. Uh, they, they, they wanted to find a term which, which didn't just suggest Scotland was a kind of appendage of England. So they go for Britain and North Britain in particular. And of course, you have the hotel uh, at Waverley Station being called the North, North British Hotel, sadly, no longer now called the Balmoral. And, and you have the, the whole sense that Scotland is North Britain. And, and uh, my, my colleague here at St. Andrews, um, Robert Crawford, a professor of English, has, has argued that the whole academic discipline of English literature really was, was an 18th century Scottish invention as, as Scottish writing entered what he calls its, its British phase, which really reached its apogee in the, in the writings of Walter Scott. But you have this, this very um, powerful um, uh, impetus from, from enlightened Scots, particularly, of course, in, in, in Edinburgh and the Lowlands, who want to see themselves as British. And this, this is n- not in any sense diminishing their Scottishness, but it's actually enhancing it by, by putting themselves in the van of, of, of this new kind of enlightened British identity. And you, you talk about Walter Scott being the apogee there. Um, perhaps what people don't know is that what, what's usually claimed as the first British novel, um, Schmollett, uh, by Schmollett's Roderick Random, uh, which is around about 1750, late 1740s, opens with the lines, I was born in the northern part of this United Kingdom. Yes, absolutely. So, so you've got a very, a very clear uh, assertion here of, of Britishness and this sense of Scotland as, as North British. Uh, and of course, around the same time as this, you've got Rule Britannia mm. being written by a Scot, uh, James Thompson, son of the Manse, came from the borders and um, studied arts and divinity at Edinburgh, was, was originally intending to follow his father into, into the Church of Scotland ministry, but in fact became a, a full-time writer and moved down to London. But Rule Britannia is, is a tremendous expression, of course, of this new idea of, of Britishness. 
Um, and, and Thompson, interestingly, when he sends an early draft of, of another poem, he wrote a huge number of poems um, about extolling the idea of Britain, and he, he sent another one to a, a fellow Scottish poet saying the English are a little vain in themselves and their country. Britannia, too, includes our native country, Scotland. So this emphasis on Britain, Britannia, North Britain, because it was an inclusive identity which embraced Scotland as well as England. And we've looked at, um, we, we've spoken of the Scottish Enlightenment here. We haven't touched on economics, and you don't touch on economics in the article. But I wondered if the moral foundation of the great Scottish economists, um, that we think of Adam Smith being foremost mm. here, um, has something to do with that appeal. For instance, I, I compare it with um, what we might call a less moral English approach uh, to economics at the same time with, say, Bernard Mandeville, um, which is much more red in tooth and claw. And I wondered if that moral aspect of of the Scottish Enlightenment and the economics born of the Scottish Enlightenment had something to do with, I don't know, making a more widespread appeal, because certainly that had greater purchase in England, ultimately, than, say, someone like Mandeville, who was a more English thinker. Yeah, that's, that's actually very interesting, Paul. I mean, I, I, as you say, haven't particularly thought about that, and I'm not an economic historian, but I, th- I think you're right that, as you say, Smith's Wealth of Nations, with, it, with its kind of moral agenda as well as its, its enlightened self-interest, probably does have uh, more appeal in, in, in England than, than the rather cruder um, views of Mandeville and others. And, and I think you're right that, that maybe this, this whole concept of Britain being based on, on sort of free trade, on, on probity in business dealings, on, on kind of sound currency, sound banking, much of it is being driven from Scotland, and, and yet it becomes seen as a very British virtue. And of course, certainly with the development of the empire, I think one can see many of those of, 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 of those kind of economic views becoming central to the the, the, the ethos of, of British imperialism and and, 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 and free trade within mm. within the empire. Yes, and of course this is all connected ultimately to to, to what you call you know, muscular Christian values. This is about Protestantism, more specifically in the Scottish case, Presbyterianism, um, and this is this is very evident still in the twentieth century, as you claim, with people who make a huge contribution to the idea of Britishness in the 20th century. One person you mention is, of course, John Buchan, um, whose dual identity is founded in the landscape of the two countries, of the borders in particular, something Rory Stewart writes about at the moment. But also, perhaps more importantly than that, one of the great muscular Christians and great Scotsmen of the 20th century is John Reith, to whom we owe the, the, the modern concept of the BBC. Absolutely. And, um, uh, you know, he almost single-handedly creates it. And it is the British Broadcasting Corporation. And Reith, a man, of course, who is is deeply proud of his Scottish roots, again, a son of the manse, in his case, of the the Free Church, like uh, John Buchan. And yet also, in a sense, espouses uh, the, the, the British establishment, gets his, his son christened by the Archbishop of Canterbury and um, becomes this, this great embodiment, of course, of Britishness with, with, with pushing the monarchy at the heart of the, uh, of, of the nation's identity, you know, really inventing the idea of the, 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 the royal Christmas broadcast and, and uh, earning the, the, the sobriquet of gold microphone per because of the way he kind of invests 
royal occasions with a kind of quasi-religious significance. But Rees, I think, was, was passionate about British identity, and I think partly for him as for others, it, it, it came out of his experiences in the, in the First World War. Um, but, you know, he was very keen that the BBC should both express Britain to the outside world, nations shall speak peace unto nation, of course, which he had engraved over the, the doorway of Broadcasting House, but also that it should reflect the constituent parts of Britain to each other. So he was very keen that it should have separate services for Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, and of course the English regions, which would both opt out, but also would, would have programs which would go out on the network. So you'd have programs which, which explain Scotland to listeners in, in the southeast of England and explain the Midlands of, of, of England to Wales. So so there was this great sense, I think, of, of Britishness as something which, which both needed to be expressed outwardly to the world, but also within the British Isles, so that, that each part understood that the rest. Mm -hmm. And there's something, I suppose, as well, part of that legacy is the evangelical about um, Reith. And certainly in the BBC of the Golden Age, the Puritanism is very evident there in the philosophy of the institution that, 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 that he inspired. Yes, absolutely. And of course, his conviction that the BBC, in a sense, uh, was, was almost a, a branch of the church militant, that, that of course, he established the, the daily service of worship, as you say, and, and the kind of sense that the nation was, was on its knees when it was tuned into that, that service. And again, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's a very British idea, because he, he, he's a passionate believer in established churches. He wants to see the, the Church of England and the Church of Scotland leading those services services for the nation. And, and yes, there's, there's his own sort of passionate, as you say, evangelical Christianity, his, his missionary zeal. And yes, it's coming out, I think, of this same Protestant ethos, um, which, which we've, we've traced right through from, from the, the very early days of, of the Reformation. And, and uh, I think, I think it, but Reef is, is perhaps one of the supreme manifestations of it in the, in the 20th century. And how much is um, do you think the decline of Britishness, uh, which is evident, I think, on both sides of the border in England um, and Scotland, more dramatically uh, for, uh, for obviously forthcoming political reasons in Scotland, um, how much has that got to do with the decline of Protestantism? I think it's got a huge amount to do with it. I mean, certainly if you track it in Scotland, the high point of um, Church of Scotland membership in, in, in Scotland was in the mid-1950s, where you also have the one and only occasion when any political party got a majority of the vote in Scotland, and that was the old Unionist Party, later the, the Scottish Conservative and Unionist Party. So you had this alliance right through to the middle of the 19th century of Protestantism, Unionism, Conservatism, and of course, fueled by quite a strong anti-Catholic anti sentiment. We shouldn't, we shouldn't play down and ignore that. And that has massively declined over the last 60 years. You, you see plummeting um, uh, attendance at, at, at churches, uh, particularly Church of Scotland. You see plummeting um, vote for the Conservative Party, of course, which is left now with just one, one seat uh, in, in Westminster. So I think the, the, the loss of Protestant identity, and perhaps more specifically and, and more positively, um, the collapse of a kind of militant anti-Catholic identity in Scotland has undoubtedly, I think, 
played a considerable part in diminishing the sense of Britishness. Now, on the English side of the border, probably slightly less simple. I mean, there's, there's clear decline in, in, in church going and in Church of England attendance um, uh, uh, over, over the last um, 50 years. Um, uh, there's, there's also clearly more of a rise of, of national identity in both England and particularly in Scotland. But I think the decline of Protestantism, together with other uh, factors like the decline of, of empire, um, economic decline, have, have, have played a part. But I think Protestant identity is a, is a very big contributor to that. Mm. And of course, the rise of Europe as well. Um, and maybe the rise of Europe, while it inspires uh, the breakup of England and Scotland, ultimately, it's interesting to see on the back of uh, experiences in Europe that Ireland and England, and I markedly use that word England, have, have perhaps never been closer. But that's another story. But, um, well, Ian, Ian Bradley, thank you very much for that. Um, it's a fascinating article, and um, I'm sure that uh, our readers will be interested. It's in the uh, May edition. Thank you very much.